This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. Hello, welcome to the Tuesday episode. This episode is going to make you think. It is also going to inspire you to have conversations with people in your family. And I don't just mean superficial, you know, surface level conversations. I mean deep conversations about their childhood, their parents' childhood, their grandparents' childhood, and so on and so forth. In this episode, I am speaking to We Are Bridges author Cassandra Lane. We Are Bridges is a memoir that is about Bert Bridges, who is Cassandra Lane's great-grandfather. In 1904, in Holmesville, Mississippi, his wife, Mary, so Cassandra's great-grandmother, was pregnant with their first child, and this is also the year that he was lynched. In the book, Lane speculates that the reason he was hung from a tree to die was because he did not want to sell his land to the mayor or white men in Mississippi. So Lane never knew her great-grandfather. She did know her great-grandmother, Mary. However, she died when Lane was 11. But growing up, she had only heard little bits and pieces about her great-grandfather and what had happened so many years ago. When Lane was 35, she was pregnant and she started to research her family history and kind of look at how such a violent and traumatic event in a family's history can play out over generations and how it affected the generations that followed Bert and Mary. She talks about how when she was growing up in school, their history classes never touched on things like this. And unfortunately, Bert's story is not unique. And there's many families that have dealt with the same kind of trauma. So while her book is a memoir about her family's history, it is very generalizable to other families across the U.S., She has been quoted saying, not knowing one's story is like being buried alive. In this episode, we talk a lot about the importance of really having those hard conversations with your family, learning about your family's history. She tells us about her journey to becoming a writer and ultimately how she went about researching and finding out the information that she didn't know about until she started really digging into the research. She talks about how she hired a investigator and how it was difficult to find because people didn't have birth certificates. So she gets into all of that. We also talk about how history repeats itself and, you know, recent events that have been going on in the U.S., how it kind of parallels what was happening in 1904. We really had a great conversation and it really got me thinking about, you know, my grandparents, my parents, how much do I really know about their history and what went on? Like, I don't know 
anything. And similar to Cassandra's story, how she had said that growing up, she heard little bits and pieces of what had happened to her great grandfather. I feel the same way. Like you hear bits and pieces of things, but nobody wants to make anything uncomfortable. So you don't ask uncomfortable questions. You don't kind of dive into topics that are uncomfortable. And I think that's really important. And she makes the point that, you know, we all think that we're so close to our family, but so many family relationships are very surface level and we don't actually share difficult things with members of our family. So this episode will get you thinking I hope it inspires you to make some phone calls and have some sit down conversations with some family members. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode and welcome author Cassandra Lane to the mom room. So first off, I thought you could just tell us about yourself and your journey to becoming a writer and ultimately writing the book, We Are Bridges, which is what we're talking about today. So as far as my journey to becoming a writer, it started when I was little. My mom said that, you know, I, I don't know, maybe nine or 10 said that I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to do it behind the scenes because I was very, very timid. I didn't talk a lot and books for me were a place where I felt embraced and understood and a part of something. And so because authors had given that to me, I wanted to, and I loved literature so much, I wanted to see how to give that to someone else. And so I told her around nine, between nine and 11 that I wanted to be a writer. She got me my first journal, it had a lock and key, and I just poured all of my thoughts and feelings and stories into that journal. And I didn't know any writers. I grew up in a small town, poor, just didn't have, you know, the, those models. However, I kept kind of researching, how can I get into this field? I knew that I wanted to write books one day. I decided to be safe that I would go into journalism. And I, that's what I did. I, I majored in journalism, minored in English literature. I became the editor of my campus newspaper, did an internship at the local newspaper, and they hired me after I graduated. And so I did that and it was great. It was great for like honing my chops, working with editors, working under deadline, meeting so many different people and sources. Even though I didn't talk a lot, I was a good listener. And people just from all walks of life told me all their stories. <laughs> and so that just filled me up, I think. And I was about 26 when I found my first creative writing workshop. I was in New Orleans. It was a Black creative writing workshop with these amazing poets and writers. And it just gave me so much confidence and opened my eyes to a world that I hadn't known before. Here I was, you know, writing professionally for the newspapers, but I was able to, it was just very liberating to be in this creative writing workshop where we, you know, read each other's work, dissected each other's work, went out into the community at bookstores, you know, performed our work at book festivals. And so that just, I wanted more of that. And eventually I left the newspaper job full time, started freelancing and writing. I decided to go back to school here in Cal I'm in Los Angeles. I did the MFA at Antioch University LA. Then I start, after I graduated from there, I started teaching. I started publishing some of my creative pieces, but again, I still wanted to make sure that I had money 
to put food on the table and roof of my head. <laughs> so I started teaching and I loved kids. I love working with teenagers and that was my way of giving back. And so teaching was a full-time job while I wrote a little bit on the side. And then I did college advising for seniors. Then I was a senior writer for an early education nonprofit. And then I worked at the Los Angeles Dodgers as a community relations manager. And I did writing too. And now I'm the editor-in-chief of a magazine here called LA Parent. And again, I've always worked, you know, a little, I quit my job twice, but it was only for like six months here, six months there as I wrote. I did a lot of writing in that time, but I've always worked, you know, professional jobs as I continue to work on my own creative projects. And so it took a while to, to write We Are Bridges because of that and some, and other emotional, it's it's an emotional book. So part of it was that, you know, it was just a lot of psychological, emotional drain. So, and then I became a mom, but it's in the world now. It's been almost 20 years and it's out in the world and I'm starting to get the inklings for the next book project, which I'm excited to explore. When did you decide that this was something that you wanted to write about and make a book about your great grandfather's story? When I was here in Los Angeles, so I didn't leave Louisiana until I was I had just turned 30 in terms of in terms of living somewhere else and my ex-husband and I moved to Los Angeles. We were both journalists. He's a photojournalist. He was working for the Associated Press and I enrolled in the MFA program and I when I got accepted into the program, I actually had another proposal. I don't even remember what it was, but as I was you know, writing and workshopping the story of my great grandfather. My mom, I knew a little bit about the story. My mom had told me, my uncle Cricket had told me that we had this ancestor who was lynched. And I knew my great grandmother, she had died and she died in 1982, but I remembered her very well. I was 11 when she died. So for me, even though it had happened in 1904, it still felt very tangible because I knew his love, great grandma Mary. And I I started dreaming. I didn't set out intending to write the story, but I often wonder if it's because I was so far away from home, you know, almost 2000 miles away from Louisiana. And sometimes when you're at home, you're in that environment, you're not necessarily separated enough to look at it. And I think being out here geographically so far away, no blood family in the city of Los Angeles is such a big, Place. It can be a lonely place. And I just started thinking, I think, about family and my roots. And I was doing a lot of self, you know, exploration and trying to heal myself to examine why I was the way I was. And that brought me to family history. And the first story I wrote was about Bert and trying to imagine who he was as a young man full of hope, hopes and dreams before he was racially murdered. So for people that don't know what this book is about, because it's a memoir, but can you kind of explain what the story is? Absolutely. So I would call it a family memoir. It follows my pregnancy. The way I structured it ultimately is that it follows my pregnancy. When I find out that I'm pregnant for the first time, I'm in my like late 30s. I had first said that I wasn't going to walk the motherhood path and I changed over time. And 
once I found out that I was pregnant, I wanted to continue a story that I had started, which was the Bert, the story of Bert Bridges. I wanted my child to know something about his family, even if I had to imagine parts of that, because I had such a longing. I wanted to, you know, read letters that maybe Mary and Bert had exchanged or just hear their voices. So I imagined that any child that I had might want to know about his family. So I picked the book back up and I started weaving my modern present day Los Angeles story of being pregnant and all the fears and joys that come with that with my ancestral story and what I imagine that my great grandparents went through. Not only the tragedy, but also the love that they had, the desire that they had. So I'm weaving those two stories. And in between that, there are other generational stories too, looking at motherhood, fatherhood, loss, love, joy, all of that. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there, and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals. So you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. 
curious what the research was like for you. So I imagine this book took a long time to write. And like you said, you had to imagine parts of it. But was there research done where you went and spoke to other family members or like looked into newspaper clippings? Like what did that look like? My mother, I have to give her credit. I talked to her a lot. She was one of the ones who badgered my great grandmother about who was my, who was her father's biological dad. My great grandmother married after the lynching. She was married off basically to a distant cousin. And she didn't want to talk about Bert Bridges. So we don't have real fleshed out stories about him. She did eventually say what his name was. She did say that he was beautiful and that she loved him. Even on her deathbed in her 90s, she was crying about him and their love and how beautiful he was. And then and then she would just, it was just like a wall. She would say, but the white folks hated him because he was a proud man. They called him uppity and they lynched him. They hanged him. And the reason that it happened was because he didn't want to sell the land that they were living on, correct? I actually imagined and created that oh, okay. part. He would not tell us why. She said the reason was because he was proud and he didn't count down to anyone and they didn't like that, his pride. And in terms of records, there aren't any records. And, you know, being a Black family in the South at that time, you're lucky to have a birth certificate. <laughs> and I did find out that the town that they were in, and I found this out from an uncle, the town that they were in was most likely Homesville, Mississippi. And we deduced that because my grandfather, their child, was born on his birth certificate. And it's a delayed birth certificate because, again, when they were born, these, these young Black babies, there was no one recording their birth, their existence. So my grandparents, my mother's parents, got their birth certificates later in life, and they're called delayed birth certificates. And on my grandfather's birth certificate is this town, Holmesville, Mississippi, which is now a ghost town, a registered, nationally registered ghost town. And so we, you know, most likely this couple met in Holmesville, and that's most likely where the lynching happened. I did reach out to the state of Mississippi. All records before 1912, I believe, were burned in a courthouse fire. So even if there were any, they were burned. I hired a Mississippi, a well-known Mississippi researcher to find anything, any cousins, you know, late relatives. We do believe we found the same Burt Bridges on a census report. And so now I know who his father was, his mother's name, siblings. I took a DNA test and have found what we believe were some distant cousins. I've talked to one of those cousins. And a lot of this didn't end up in this particular book because that wasn't the scope of the book. But this is work that will research that will continue. I did look at tons of newspaper clippings, tons of books about lynchings, you know, lynching plays, things that were written. A lot of the research that I did had to do with what was going on around that time since my family didn't have records. And I knit together, you know, newspaper clippings, book passages, what music was being created. That's how I tell, that's how I work around the gaps. Right. Do you remember, because in the article that I read, there was a quote from your grandfather named Houston, who was Bert's son. And he had mentioned he was going through a depression or something. And he had mentioned that white people lynched his dad before he got to know him. Do you remember how old you were when you heard that? 
when I first heard him saying that, I was a little girl because I remember being on the floor on the, yeah, so probably 10, 9, 10, 11. I'm the oldest of five and I had these siblings, but I, for some reason I, I was drawn to the elderly people in my family. And so instead of being outside playing with my sisters and neighborhood kids, I was always just kind of lounging around the old people. And so I remember him being in, after he was forced to retire, because he was a lumber worker, chopping down trees, which I also think is strange, given the way his father was killed. But after he was forced to finally retire from the woods, because he had cataracts, and they were just afraid for his safety. And he didn't have any hobbies. He didn't have anything to keep his mind going, his body going. And he would just sit in his recliner and just reminisce on the past hopefully some of the good, but lots of, of the bad. And ultimately, every time he would he would return to the fact that he didn't know his father and how his stepfather beat. I think if his stepfather had been a good father to him, maybe it wouldn't have been so painful. But he was very abusive to my grandfather. And so my grandfather had this deep longing for a man who might have loved him because he was his own. And... Yeah, I was between nine and 11 when I first heard him. And I didn't know. I'm like, why is this 80-something-year-old man crying about this? This happened. What is lynching? You know, I didn't know then. But of course, I remembered that later as I became older and started getting interested in the story. Right. And do you think, because you mentioned how it was something that wasn't really talked about in your family, people just kind of... It's almost like they knew that it had happened, but people never really talked about like who he was, especially Mary, his then wife. Did Mary talk a lot to Houston about Bert? She didn't. She told him, he did eventually tell him that John Buckley was not his real dad and that Bert, his, his biological father's name was Bert Bridges and that he was proud and handsome, but no, she wouldn't. And maybe that was part of the longing, too. And I, I, I explored that in the book. Like, you know, I understand Mary to some degree that she was probably protecting herself, protecting her, trying to protect her son and, and his children, maybe from feeling hate and, and any sense of like revenge or whatever. I don't know. But my question is, was that the best thing to do or if she had given some stories, maybe some stories, what his laughter was like, what he'd like to talk about, what his dreams were, maybe that would have been a little bit more healing as opposed to just when I think of when we would think of him, it's seeing this, this body dangling from a tree. And I think that's what I was attempting to do in this book is bring him down from the tree, put his clothes back on him and give him a voice and a life and beauty. Right. So I think a lot of families, when something like that happens, they tend to, like you were saying, not want to say anything because they think that they're protecting the rest of the family by not talking about it. But part of why you wrote this was because it's so important for us to know our family's history and what happened. Because I know you mentioned when you were pregnant, you wanted your son to know this history. So why is it important for us to know our family's history, even when it is something tragic and upsetting? Mm. Because I don't think we can separate the past from the present and the, or the future. As we see now, I mean, look at what, <laughs> what happened with the Black Lives Matter movement, George Floyd. I mean, for me, those are public day lynchings when you see 
a person being killed in front of everyone. And now we have cell phones to record it, but you know, it's, it's been happening. So yes, the lynchings, you know, what we call lynchings stopped happening some decades ago, but really it's not that far long ago when you think about the people who are still living, the survivors. And again, history repeats itself. And we're seeing, we often think about history and, and wonder, oh my God, how could the people who were witnessing that have stood by and let it happen? You know, how, that would never happen in our time. And yet here it is, murder after murder, police brutality after police brutality. And so, yeah, I just don't, they're, they're not separate. And then Scientifically, epigenetics shows, you know, has proven that we have cellular memory, that we carry our ancestors uh, in our bodies. And so whether that's a disease, you know, that we inherit or a talent or psychological wounds, it's still there whether we want to talk about it or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a modern day version of things that were happening in 1904. Which is, yeah, when you say it like that, that's true. Jeez, I feel like teary-eyed. <laughs> I know, I was like, I want to write about something light next, but I don't know, maybe it's just not right. No, this is so important. It's so important. And something that I was thinking about when I was reading the article was, because you mentioned going through school, you didn't learn about this history, which blows my mind. And I was thinking this book and just telling this one story is almost like it's one story, yet it can be generalized to American history at that time, right? And it's not taught in school, which is also why it's important to have these stories, because where else are people going to hear these things? Absolutely. I mean, I just imagine if I had, and who knows, I don't know what the curriculum is now in my hometown. And I know it's gotten better, especially in some of our larger cities in terms of the types of texts that they're teaching. I have lots of writer friends who are also teachers, and I know that they make a conscious effort to bring, you know, texts dealing with all kinds of issues by uh, writers of color into their classrooms. And I taught for about five years and I, I did the same. But growing up in this small town, yeah, it just wasn't, it would have been so powerful as a teacher to, you know, ex to, to show, to, to basically to just give these stories to your students and then listen, because those same students in this small town had had these kinds of things happen in their family. And so to bring, and I love teaching literature, so to bring a story down and weave it in with what the students' families have gone through would be so empowering, I think. And there were just so many missed opportunities. So, I mean, we were learning about, <laughs> you know, different wars and I, I felt so disconnected from the history that I was taught, from some of the, the literature that I was taught, because it didn't reflect me, it didn't reflect my family's history, and I just think that was such a missed opportunity. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. 
And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner. I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolavie.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. What would your advice be to someone who's maybe listening to this and thinking, oh man, like I have to learn about my family's history. Where do people start to learn about their past and their family's history? Hopefully there are family members that, you know, are still around with, with memory. That's what happens is that we get, we take our family for granted and they don't live forever. Like we won't live forever. I regret that I didn't record my grandparents' voices. I just didn't, I didn't think to. I remember being a young reporter and writing about them, but I don't think I wrote the first column about them until after they had, had, they had my grandmother had just passed. And I wrote about her and I was connecting her to this larger, you know, history. And I wish that's something that she could have seen. I wish, I mean, I have the memory of her voice, but I wish I had just hit the tape recorder at that time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was the technology. And so that we could have her voice, even though she's long gone and my son could hear that. So I would just encourage people to, you know, ask family members if it's okay to talk and you don't have to have like a formal interview. Like they could be talking about anything. Tell, ask them to talk about their childhood. You know, look at their their date, their date, birth date, and pick and their their childhood, and look at what was going on in history at that time, and see what they remember about whether you know that time in history. And hit record on your cell phone, your your voice, and whatever you use to record voices. Not everyone wants to talk about the past, so you know just honor that. 
but there's always somebody in the family who, who doesn't have a problem talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so finding those people, getting their stories, asking if they had journals. Maybe they, they kept journals. Maybe they have old letters, old newspaper clippings. I have so much stuff here that, you know, if I ever do have, you know, if my son is ever interested or he has children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, I hope there are things, you know, that will be able to be passed on to them if they're ever curious about the we're living in. I'm so inspired to ask questions and sit down and have actual conversations about people in my family, like their past, like my mayor. Because when I was reading about your story, you know, I hear things in passing and, you know, people will say something and my initial reaction is shock. I'm like, like that happened. And then it's just kind of brushed off and like, you don't want to bring it up. It's uncomfortable, but like, it's so important to talk about it. And like you said, we take it for granted that they're here now to be able to talk about these things. And then one day you're going to think back, like, why didn't I ask them about that? Like, how did that experience make you feel? Like, what were you going through at that time? Like, just to get to know people, it's like you're around them all the time, but it tends to be more surface level. And exactly. We do look on the surface, you know, (laughs) and as humans, we don't want to deal with hard things. Like as soon as something is difficult, we like my family uses humor as a defense mechanism a lot. And it's like, just make a joke. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's great, but let's actually have the difficult conversations as well because that's so important. Absolutely. And it's so interesting. You know, you think your family, you know, you know them in and out. They're the closest to you. But if you could, if you live, if you have that habit of just living on the surface and just, you know, keeping the difficult stuff kind of in the closet, when somebody is going through a personal tragedy, they might not come to their family. I mean, that happened to me. I've seen that happen with some of my siblings. It's so interesting. You can be from a big family. And if it's a family that kind of lives on the surface or hides behind humor or even, you know, spirituality or religion, and you've found yourself, you find yourself in this tragedy, or sometimes of your personal doing, it can be hard to go to family members and and share that. And you can still, even in a big family, feel very alone. Yeah, it's true because when everything is surface level and more lighthearted and make a joke about everything, when you're really struggling, now you don't want to be an inconvenience to your family who, you know, is always happy and nothing's a big deal. So I can totally see that for sure. Oh, geez, so much. to your people. Yes. yes, everybody. Like this is such a good just reminder too. And life happens so fast and all of a sudden like you know, you're an adult and what I find with me now is I have a two and a half year old and I'm like you're so focused on your own life and things are happening so fast and you kind of forget to stay in contact and have those conversations with people. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about the importance of the village and having support for parents, but especially for new moms. So what was your experience with that? So again, I was way out here, so far away from home. So I didn't have my blood relatives 
of course we could talk over phone and we did. I remember that first call and I write about it in the book when I told my family that I was pregnant and they were just shocked because I had told them, you know, I am not going to become a mother. I'll be an auntie, you know? (laughs) So it it was a shock to me. It was a shock to them. And that, and the fact that I was excited was also shocking. And so I, of course, was able to talk to them and talk to my mom through the pregnancy, what I was dealing with just physically, but I had to create my own village here in a new, well, at that point I had been here a few years, but it's interesting when you become pregnant and you have, you know, before I was pregnant, I had a lot of friends like me who were artists. They weren't parents. They didn't plan to become parents. And I still love them dearly, but, you know, our lives kind of went a different way. And especially during those early years of childhood, because they just didn't, they didn't have kids. And I was consumed with, you know, early, early child rearing. So I had to find other moms. I went to mom and me classes. I remember connecting with other moms at the church that I found. Preschool, that was a great place to meet other parents and become friends. And that I continued that village build, building through, you know, through the years. I remember us really becoming close with a couple of couples at his elementary school. And we made sure, and we all lived within like 10 minutes of each other. I would say that too, like, because if you're, especially if you live in a big city, trying to find people that you can connect with who are close neighbors, if your school is close. So that way it's easy to get together as a village. And so because we lived so close to each other, I made a point to start this tradition of getting the the kids together on the weekends, impromptu movies. You know, it didn't always have to be formal. I can be a last minute person. Um, and, you know, and so, the, and there, the other parents did it as well. I remember living on side of a woman who had three kids and her house was the place everyone went to. We, she had the picnic table out and that's where the kids went to, the their bubbles, play with the dogs. So there's always, they're just, it's kind of, it makes me think of my grandmother. My grandmother's house was the place that nucleus place that people went to in the community and the family. And I feel like you need, it's always nice to have someone who is that foundation, whether it's the person who's like, oh, let's go here, let's do this, go see this play or whatever with the kids, or a house or a yard where everybody kind of congregates. So just being intentional and not afraid to reach out to other parents to create that. I feel like back in the day, A lot of families, like immediate family, but also extended families lived right in the same area. Because I always think about, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. But nowadays with, you know, people work late into life. So your extended family is not just at home, like helping you raise kids. And a lot of us live far away from our families. You have to work to make your own village. And I always joke that like sometimes a person in my village could be the Uber Eats guy who comes and drops off food. Like, you know, like I don't have family nearby making meals and going to have dinner at their place. And so sometimes we have to, okay, I'm going to order food today because I have to also take care of myself and take care of the house and work. And so it's totally different. But that's one of the biggest things I found that helped me was having really close friends with kids that were Milo's age. And it was so nice just to be able to talk to someone who was going through the same things, like so important. Mm-hmm. It's key. It's, it's absolutely key. So that you don't feel so isolated and you don't think that you're, 
it's your situation is unique, whatever your child, your, your struggles are at that time or, or your ambivalent feelings. So that's good that you have that. Why do you think it's important for us to take time for ourselves as mothers and without feeling guilty about it? That's number one to me. <laughs> you know, the old saying that you have to put your mask on first. One, so that you're not parenting with resentment. You want to parent with, you know, you're not going to always be 100%. That's just impossible. But you want to parent with as much kind of joy as you can. And I think the only way to do that is if you're first filling your own cup. And so I'm very much a believer in solo dates. We're at the magazine, I started a column called Date with LA. And yeah, it's about, you know, you can have a romantic date with your partner or, or a girlfriend date. But one of my favorite pieces to write is like the solo date because I love exploring whatever city I'm in. And sometimes you can't do that with if you're out with friends or out with your partner because you're talking or they don't want to, you know, I like to just stop and linger. I'll, I'll make a U-turn if I see something and take a photo. I love taking photos kind of as a journal. So that's a fun way for me to do self-care is to just have those what Julia Cameron calls artist dates and look Looking at the world with fresh eyes, even if it's in your own neighborhood, going to the spa, taking time to take a bubble bath, to go out with friends for tea, whatever it is, it's just so important because that helps you come back to your own family, your child with a sense of, of yourself. You were a whole being, a whole self before you became a parent and that person is still there. Yeah. And doing things solo allows you to think your own thoughts. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's interesting because sometimes I'll go for long walks and I listen to a podcast, but I find when I go for long walks and I don't listen to anything, it's like my mind, you know, like I'm thinking, I'm noticing things more because I'm not so focused on what the podcast is saying. So I try and mix it up. Even sometimes when I drive my loaded daycare, on the way home, I won't listen to anything and it'll just be like silence in the car. And I actually come up with great ideas and I have, like, it's so important. And I feel like once you have kids, you're, it's nonstop stimulation, you know? It is. <laughs> so that is, that is such a good point. Do things by yourself. If you had 24 hours to do whatever you wanted, how would you spend that 24 hours by yourself? Oh, I've been, I already know because I've been thinking about doing it. Uh, <laughs> As a treat for myself. Oh, like a, yes, for the book. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to rent. So if it's only 24 hours, I, I can't go away. But I would rent. That's one of the things I love being here. I'm only 20 minutes from the beach. I would love to rent a beach house, a beachfront house. And I've stayed in places near the beach, but not like on the beach. So I would love to read to rent a beachfront property and just spend 24 luxurious hours there. That's amazing. I would probably do the same. We're not near the ocean, but I can dream about it. Exactly. <laughs> we went to, where did we stay? Oh, Santa Monica. So we stayed there. This was before we had our son. I had a conference in San Diego, and then we drove up that really beautiful highway up to Los Angeles. And all those little towns along the beach, oh my goodness, they're so beautiful. And I always say, like, we have to go back there with Milo. Just, I love the ocean. And it's funny because I'm from northern Ontario. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nowhere near the ocean, but I feel like that's where I need to be is near the ocean. 
Oh, yeah. To me, the ocean is like, I don't know. It's our collective selves. Yeah. So, so. so relaxing. So how would you say becoming a mother transformed your creative life? Mm. One, I realized how much time I squandered <laughs> before becoming a mom, how much time I took for, for granted and just ugh, did not value. And I wish I could pull back those hours, days, years. <laughs> so I'm actually more, I feel just much more economical with my time, just wiser with my time because I have to be. I get up when I'm working on a creative project between four and four thirty, before it's time to start getting ready for work and the school craziness, that's when I have the quiet, the dark. Like four a.m. Yes. Oh yeah. boy. I know. <laughs> I know it's insane. So that means that I can't stay up late. But yeah, carving out that I'm really protective of my time now. I'm fiercely protective of my time and my space, and it's not a lot. So, you know, if it's two hours in the morning, I need those two hours and I appreciate those. Yeah. And I I think that parenting has also helped me see my work in different ways and treat my work. I've been called, a lot of us call our books, book babies, and I've been calling that and, and honoring those stages, you know, so parenting helps with all of that. It's funny. I was just thinking about time the other day because I noticed after having Milo, sleep is so important. Like I never used to care about sleep. It wasn't even a thing. And now it's so important because it's not in my control anymore. So it becomes so important. And then the same thing goes with time because I'll be listening to a podcast and they'll be talking about, oh, they just watched a movie. And I'm like, you watched a whole movie? Like you, you spent like two hours. <laughs> like, I don't want to use my time to do things like that. You know, like you said, you have to prioritize and time becomes a luxury. So it's like, I can't watch a movie. Like I just, I can't, that's two whole hours. Whereas right. before I wouldn't even think twice about it. I know movies back to back, right? Yeah, yeah. totally. And I feel so like, oh my gosh, out of the loop. I have a lot of creative friends and they're caught up on these shows and they're, and I feel so crazy. I can't say, oh yeah, no, that show or talk about it because I just don't, I, I think I, I did get to binge watch Bridgerton. Oh, good. But it's, all, it's always just like one a year, one every two years. I never, I'm always behind on all yeah. the shows. Oh, geez. So do you have anything in the works or have you thought about a second, like another book that you want to write or like, what are your future plans? Yeah. So I'll continue with my work as an editor and I love working with, with lots of local writers and I'm non-local writers too. So I have that. That's like the bulk of my days, but I have an idea that I thought I was going to do and it's taken a little bit of a back seat because putting this book out in the world and now having people read it and reach out to me has brought up another story and I can't stop thinking about it. I had a dream about it. So I think I need to follow that and get, haven't been able to really write. I I voice recorded some notes. I've just been so busy with all the book launch events and and interviews, but I'm looking forward to like, I'm eager now to, to start seeing what the, this book wants to say or this project wants to say. Awesome. That's exciting. So lastly, I thought you could tell us where people can find you online and where they can get a copy of the book. Absolutely. So my website is CassandraLane.net. 
I'm on Twitter at Cass Lane Writes. I'm on Instagram at Cassandra.Lane71. And I'm on Facebook, Cassandra Lane. And I love supporting all of our independent bookstores. An easy place to do that is bookshop.org. And you can choose which independent bookstore you want to support by just searching uh, the bookstore name. They benefit if you buy your book through bookshop.org. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It was... Like, I feel like I got a lot out of it and I'm inspired to, my mamere is going to be like, oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mamere. <laughs> yeah. She's not going to want me to come over now. <laughs> People are, you know, wanting to oh, be asked. yeah. Yeah. So she, you never know. Maybe that'll be the case. But yeah, anyways, well, it was really nice to meet you virtually. I'm so looking forward. I'm going to order this book and I'm going to read it and I'm very excited. But yeah. I hope you have a good rest of your day and it was nice to chat with you today. Thank you, Renee. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you so much for your time. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.